Thank you for tuning in to The Great Work Podcast. My name is Amanda, your host. Before we get into the episode, please be sure to like, subscribe, comment below. Rate me five stars if you think I deserve it. And um, please share this with a friend if you think that they would benefit from listening. Today's episode, we have Michael Pregent, who is a Hudson Institute senior fellow, former intelligence officer in the military and veteran of the Gulf War and Iraq War after 9-11. He talks a lot about the military perspective of what's going on on the ground in Israel and really the U.S. response, um, talking about Iran and Qatar's influence, all of these different types of things. This type of dialogue, I find, is very lacking on TikTok, where a lot of us are getting this information. My dad has always told me this growing up, that in the lack of knowledge or understanding of something, your mind makes shit up. That's his, that's what he's always told me. And I think that's really true on TikTok. There's such limited knowledge of military operations, intelligence operations, um, jihadist groups, what they want, what they're after, all of these different types of things. And in the lack of understanding, instead of people going out of their way to try to understand, what they do is they make shit up and they make shit up calling it a genocide and they make it up calling it a an apartheid and all of these different things and we all know that this isn't true you know like those of us who look into something and realize you know how can it be a genocide when the population has increased sixfold over the last um 75 years that you know that's not a genocide but they these people don't understand and they don't try to understand so I'm really grateful to Michael Pregent, who is helping us all understand from a counterintelligence and military perspective. So without further ado, we'll get into this episode. All right. Welcome to the Great Work Podcast. My name is Amanda, your host. This is Michael Pregent, and he is here to answer all of our questions that no one on TikTok seems to have the answers to, but they all think they have the answers to about counterintelligence and war and all of these different types of things. Can you give a little intro to your background? Well, thanks for having me, Amanda. Thank you. So I'm uh, a former intelligence officer. I learned Arabic at the age of 18. And uh, spent a lot of time in the Middle East, beginning with the Gulf War. And then uh, I was a company commander in Afghanistan after 9-11. And then I served as an intelligence officer, as an embedded advisor to the Peshmerga in Iraq uh, in 2005. And then that was a 20-year military career at that point. And then I went to the, into the Defense Intelligence Agency and helped General Ordierno and General Petraeus uh, go after not only al-Qaeda, but the militias backed by Iran. Awesome. I have so many questions for you um, regarding all of that. But first, with your background in intelligence, October 7th is looked at as an intelligence failure. Can you explain a little bit about Israel got some intelligence, but clearly didn't act on it? Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Absolutely. For for your audience, there's a New York Times report or New New York Magazine report about the Israelis basically capturing Hamas's plan for October 7th, a year prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, they looked at it, it looked overly ambitious, it looked like something that they couldn't do, so it was dismissed. But the Israelis are also the best at what they call the 10th man principle. And it's it's, it's not gender specific in this case, but it's uh, basically if everybody agrees it's the 10th man's person 
tenth man's responsibility or tenth tenth woman's responsibility to push back to counter that. And we actually had that in this case, where the one person that said this could happen was a, a an intelligence officer who happened to be a, a a smart woman on this issue, right? And you know, it's it's what happens in the intelligence community too often. We always have what we call Cassandras. And for your audience, a Cassandra is somebody that warns about something, but then nobody listens to them. And and then they start questioning themselves. Is it the way it was? It was it my presentation? Is it because I've been wrong in the past? Is it my demeanor? So we inside of the intelligence community, we, we have to challenge groupthink. And we have to push back against the consensus analysis. The go along to get along principle on most teams, so you, you've heard that in probably any team you've ever worked on, right? You want to be a team player. You want to be mm-hmm. part of the group. In Intel, you need to be a team of rivals. You need to have rigorous analytical competition in order to get the best intel in front of a decision maker. And in this case, um, that intelligence was dismissed. Uh, the most they thought they could get across the, the wall were, were probably about 30 to 40 fighters. The plan called for 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 two hundred to two thousand. So, so they said, okay, this is overly ambitious. You know, it won't happen. And then you get caught up in internal domestic politics that makes you unfocused. And we're seeing that here in the United States. Our Pentagon isn't focused on external threats. They're not even focused on our internal threats right now. They're they're focused on social issues and. You know, that's that's a big part of, our, of what was going on in Israel prior to October 7th and what's going on here. If our intelligence professionals and military professionals aren't focused on their intelligence disciplines and military disciplines, then we have these types of attacks. Uh, for every major attack on the U.S. from, from Pearl Harbor to 9-11, there were Cassandras in the intelligence community warning about it, seeing some indicator, something about, you know, something that would give rise to their their uh, situational awareness or their, you know, their ability to warn, some metric went off, some indicator, right? And right after October 7th, you got to, for your audience, you have to listen to this statement by President Biden and by his security officials. They said, well, we can't hold Iran responsible because we didn't hear the Supreme Leader tell Hamas to commit this attack. Well, that's not how intelligence works anymore. It's chatter, it's indicators, uh, there are micro trends, all these little things that are happening that you have to pay attention to. And if you're trying to validate it with some super secret voice intercept of the Supreme Leader telling Hamas to commit, to commence the operation, you're not going to get it. And if that's your threshold for intel, then you're, you're going to fail every time. You got to pay attention to the chatter. You got to pay attention to that crazy captured plan from a year ago that says this is what they're going to do. And you actually have to at least put some resources at it to prepare for it. It's a wild card, right? Always prepare for the wild cards. And in this case, Israel didn't prepare for the wild card. And we certainly aren't now. We, the United States certainly is not preparing for wild cards here in the U.S. Okay, so a ton to unpack there and a ton of really exciting things. But the main thing that I have a question about and have forever, I just follow this for fun, you know, and like counter like um, security, national security, foreign policy, Israel. And there seems to be a consensus in the national security community that there are these Iran backed militias that are activating against Israel. But we 
don't like the Biden administration isn't really calling it that. And they're not pulling funding from Iran. And I think a lot of people don't understand why Iran doesn't enter themselves, why they use these proxies. Can you give a very kind of basic understanding of why Iran is doing this in the first place and then why people kind of ignore it in the U.S.? Okay, so the best way for me to talk about the Biden position on Iran is to say that they have tried this rapprochement, right? This this endeavor to engage Iran on its nuclear portfolio and to welcome Iran into the international community as a as a third party guarantor. Meaning, if Iran has more power in the Middle East, then the U.S. won't have to be there because Iran is against Al Qaeda. Iran is against ISIS. Iran is against you know Sunni jihadist threats. Well, I'm an expert witness in terrorism cases. And in each case where I've testified, I've shown that Iran has supported al-Qaeda, has supported Sunni groups, has supported the Taliban. Hamas is a Sunni jihadist group. So that falls apart. And you have to remember when it comes to the Biden administration, it's the same people that Obama used in 2015. It's Anthony Blinken. It's Jake Sullivan. It's Biden. It's Austin. It's uh, the same people. And they failed in 2015 and 16 with the JCPOA, the Iran deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And they failed again when they when they lifted the terrorist designation against the Houthis. And again, for your audience, the Houthis are a a proxy a, by you know an Iranian proxy. Iran uses its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to grow uh, Arab militias to be used for a greater. Iranian strategy, and that is to take back the Levant, to take, to basically take back Jerusalem. And they developed a an entity called the Quds Force, and the Quds Force is the Jerusalem Force. Its whole, it's the whole reason for it existing is to basically take back Israel, take back Jerusalem, and so they they grow militias in Iraq that are. That, are, that do everything Tehran wants them to do. They do it in Yemen. They've done it with Lebanese Hezbollah. They've done it with Hamas. And one of the things I like to say to my Arab colleagues, you know, I've, I've been working with uh, uh, Arab Muslims my whole career because we, we worked with them to get Al-Qaeda. We worked with them to go after ISIS. We worked with them to go after these militias. And I'll say to the, the detractors, you know, Iran will fight to the last Arab. You know, the, the, the Persian-Iranian will fight to the last Arab because they look at them uh, as a lower group of people, you know, grow, uh, a lower ethnicity, a, a lower, uh, they're lower on the religious scale to them as well, even though they're Shia. They view them as cannon fodder, and that's what they're using them for. And, but they, but they, they don't, they don't, um, they don't stray. There's no, there's no, uh, Divorce from Tehran. You, you, when Tehran creates a militia, it is beholden to it. It's paid. You know the the threats are real. They keep them in line, and and that's what we're seeing now. And for the Biden administration to say that these eighty attacks that have happened since October seventh against American uh, forces and entities in the Middle East, those are all directed by Tehran. And you don't have to have again that intercept where the supreme leader says attack the Americans. They're like minded. He basically says, resistance forces, go resist. And that means go on the offensive. And it, it's as simple as that. I, I hope that's a, a decent explanation. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So 
So they're willing to go fight with the last arrow. And then you brought up the Sunni versus Shia thing. So my understanding growing up, and I was in elementary school, so I I don't remember a ton of the original coverage of the Iraq war after 9-11, but it was all Sunni versus Shia, Sunni versus Shia. When I went to college and was studying this conflict, it doesn't seem to matter very much anymore. And it sounds like that's what you're saying now. It doesn't matter as much because Iran will use anyone Sunni versus Sunni Shia to basically fight Israel and the West. Yeah, it's um, any any group that wants to kill Americans, Iran Iran will back. It's that simple. But the, but absent the American threat, then it becomes sectarian. You know, mm-hmm. absent a, a common threat, then they fight each other. For, for power now they have a common threat, Israel, so they're they're aligning, you know, Shia support to a Sunni group in Gaza, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad is is the Shia group in Gaza. So it's it's they don't care if the if the, if the cat is black or white as long as it kills Americans, you know. It's not so okay, that's that's a really good explanation. So okay, so then then another player in this that is not talked about very much is Qatar. And Qatar is the custodian of a lot of the funds that the U.S. opens back up to Iran. And I know that they donate a lot to U.S. think tanks and to colleges and things like that. What is why is no one talking about Qatar? I know they were like the the best person we had to negotiate for some of these hostages, but they didn't do a very good job, in my opinion. Um, Why is no one talking about Qatar? Well, Qatar's on the uh, charm offensive right now because we're talking about them right now, right? And a lot of people are starting to talk about them because Qatar has played this unique role. It's like the uh, Hotel Continental in the John Wick movie, right? It it hosts a U.S. base and then it hosts terrorists, and it thinks it can get away with it. It meaning meaning it's it's like a cheating spouse. You know they're cheating on you, but they make a great meal, so you kind of stay in the relationship. I don't know what 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 our problem is, but we need to um, hold Qatar responsible because they they have justified funding Hamas and justified hosting these terrorists because they said that George Bush asked them to do it in 2006. What George Bush asked them to do was to set up a a dialogue with Hamas so that we can negotiate with Hamas if we needed to. That never meant funding Hamas. That never meant giving their leaders safe harbor. That didn't mean spreading lies about what happened on October 7th. And my focus on Qatar now is not only are they funding Hamas, uh, they're funding the universities that are allowing these violent protests in support of Hamas. And not only against Jewish Americans, but against Americans. I mean, we've seen them rip down American flags. We've seen them attack, uh, you know, Americans. And of course, you know, focusing on, on Jewish Americans, but Qatar is behind that. And the reason these universities are are not blinking when it comes to uh Jewish American donors saying that they're not going to donate anymore to Harvard, uh, New York University, Columbia, these other places. Uh, the university presidents don't care because Qatar is supplanting the loss of any funds by these uh, Israeli donors or these pro-Israel, pro-America donors. So Qatar plays this role um, of not only funding Hamas, but funding the universities that are fueling violent protests. And then funding think tanks in Washington, D.C. that quiet dissent. I know a lot of pro-Israel um, academics in these think tanks. They're across the aisle, right? I'm, I'm in a conservative think tank, the Hudson Institute. But I know that they're pro-Israel, but they're silent. 
because of the institutions they work for, because of all the Qatari money that goes into, into it. So on one hand, Qatar's supporting Hamas, funding universities, supporting violent protests, quieting dissent in Washington, D.C., and also contributing to the campaigns of Republicans and Democrats in order to buy their silence or to buy their favor in upcoming legislation that is geared towards uh, moving the U.S. base out of Qatar. Again, we put a base there so it would give us leverage. And instead, it gave Hamas leverage. Mm-hmm. So that has that has to end. And then also, at this point, you, Qatar is, is breaking international law are providing material support to terrorist groups, foreign terrorist organizations. So we need to designate Qatar as a state sponsor of terror. And if these threats were considered legitimate by Doha, they would stop immediately. Doha cannot function without being in U.S. favor. We don't seem to know that. We give Qatar all the leverage they have, and then we complain when we aren't able to get anything from them. All we have to do is demand you get the hostages out or this. And we also need to do the same thing with Tehran. You tell Hamas to release the hostages or else. But the Biden administration won't do that. They're trying to separate everything, right? By saying, we don't want this conflict to grow. Well, it's it's growing. This is what war with Iran looks like. They use their proxies to conduct attacks. The U.S. embassy right now is under threat. All the sirens are going off in Baghdad. And we cannot count on Baghdad to do anything about it because, again, Baghdad has been co-opted by the Iranians. You know, we keep failing at this, and we're we're so good at it. We don't we don't do difficult, and we fail at easy, and 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 our adversaries and enemies take advantage of it. Totally. So, do you think that in the United States, we just don't have an appetite to do a long to like really root out this conflict the way we need to? I mean, we have so much turnover with these administrations, and there's such a vast difference between. Administ- like the Biden, administ- right. Biden administration, Obama administration, and then like the Trump administration, that swing is so vast and so quick with these four-year terms when we're going right. up against these like 20-year Erdogan or right. Hamas, um, Palestinian Authority. Like, how do we compete with this moving forward? You know, because- Right. There's also an argument to be made uh, that dem- democracies can no longer win long wars mm-hmm. because of that turnover you're talking about. Uh, we changed every two to four years, even in within an administration. Mm-hmm. That last two years where they're trying to trying to go towards the you know during the election cycle they're trying to get reelected. You see these windows of opportunity open up for our enemies. I call them permissive environments. It's it's green light and chaos, right? Um, and China, Russia, Iran, North Korea see an opportunity over the next year to push as hard as they can to get all they can. And the only thing that will stop them is if the U.S. actually does something. If you want to teach a lesson to Russia and China, you can teach it through Iran. If you want to teach a lesson to um, Hamas and Qatar, you can teach that lesson through Iran. You, If you want to, you know, you can do these simple things, and, and our d- diplomatic corps calls it smart power. So I'm a former military guy, so everybody might think, oh, you're just for kinetic action, meaning you want to use force to, to, to move an enemy to the position you want them to be at. No, you can use sanctions. You can use designations. But the administration continues to put more sanctions on Iran, but they're not enforcing any of them. So it means nothing. It's for domestic consumption. It's not actually doing anything. So... If this administration was serious about sending a message to our adversaries, they would 
go after the low-hanging fruit. And, and what's the low-hanging fruit here? Qatar is low-hanging fruit. Iran is low-hanging fruit. If you can't take on Qatar, if you can't take on Tehran, you can't take on Beijing. You can't take on Moscow. Because they're looking to see how weak this administration is. And they, they've had a front row to failure, whether, it, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's the failure of the JCPOA talks. It was the Russians and the Chinese that, that told uh, the press they couldn't believe how much the Americans were willing to give up to Iran. And when they see that weakness from this administration that is risk-averse, that is distracted, that has no capability to defend our country domestically, and then you add on some things that are outside of the country, you know, with, with Ukraine, with, with, with uh, Taiwan, and now with uh, Israel in the Levant, it's, it's overwhelming to a very dysfunctional, weak, distracted appeasement team. And our adversaries are taking advantage of that. So is it your opinion that these attacks will keep happening on American bases and on Israel if Iran stays, like if the current regime stays in power? Like, how do we stop this without? We don't even have to replace the regime. All you have to do is, is hold Iran responsible for every attack. And the Iranian people would be okay. We need to learn this after killing Qasem Soleimani on January 2nd. 2020. They're okay as long as you attack the regime, attack the IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and attack the besiege. They're, they're a male force that goes out and, and arrests and beats up anybody who's, who's, uh, who's gay, who's a strong, uh, has a strong opinion, who's female and won't wear the hijab, won't cover their hair. They're okay if you attack those entities. So if we simply attacked Iran, if Iran suffered for every attack that's taken place since October 7th, Iran would tell everybody to stop. Tehran would tell everybody to stop. That's exactly what they did after we took out Qasem Soleimani. That's exactly what they did after we took out half of their Navy in 1988 in a, in a military operation called Opera Operation Praying Mantis that Reagan put in place. And Israel knows it too. Israel's not really worried about Iran. I don't know if anybody's noticed. They're, they're not really worried about Iran because they know best that all you have to do is punch Iran in the nose and they'll stop. The Biden administration continues to give the bully its lunch money every day instead of fighting back. And the bully continues. It's that easy. Okay. So, okay. So the Iran question, thank you for answering all those. Another thing that I'm seeing kind of domestically here in America is that no one under 30 understands what a war really is. Um, in my comments and everywhere I'm seeing, anytime war is talked about, all they talk about is, oh, you just want to go kill civilians. And that's not what war, the purpose of war is. The purpose of war is to strike back at an enemy. And there's always deaths of non-combatants in war, but that's not the purpose of war. Um, I just think men, especially under 30, like just a, a example, I was on a live the other day talking about how the March of Return, I believe in 2019 or 2021, I don't remember which year, they there were peaceful protests within Gaza City, including women and children. And then there were demonstrations right near the border and it was all military age males. Right. Well, the people got very mad at me for using military age male. Like, yeah. like this is this crazy thing, like, oh my gosh, why would you group all men in like that? It's kind of nuts to me that everywhere else around the world, 
men are understood to be dangerous, you know, or could be dangerous from like 15 to 40 and somewhere in that range. That's why they're not giving male hostages back that are like between 18 and 50. They're keeping them. But we don't have any understanding in America of like what fighting in a war is or that even they, they just have no understanding of like even basic terms like military age male or they misuse the Geneva Convention. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about like what are we going to what is just the basic foundations of war that uh, everyone should know? <laughs> and then how are we going to teach this to men in America who own, their only understanding is either watching like a special ops TV show or movie or playing in like modern warfare or something like that. Right. So, you know, we have a recruitment crisis in the United States. Nobody wants to join the military. I, I don't blame them. Because the military doesn't seem focused right now. Excuse me there for a second. Um, so we, I understand it. We, we basically went to war on two fronts for over 20 years after 9-11. So October 7th is the equivalent of the America losing somewhere between 50 and 200,000 Americans. If you look at Israel, right? Israel lost 1,300 people and now they're going to war in Gaza and everybody's telling them to stop. Uh, we lost 3,000 on September 11th and went to war for 20 years on two, in two countries and killed a bunch of civilians. And, and I don't say that in a bad way. I'm just saying you were, we're going after, we're not fighting militaries. We're fighting terrorist groups. And what do terrorist groups do? They want casualties. They'll fire rockets from a school, from a mosque, from a hospital, because, and they'll make the civilians stay there. They don't tell the civilians to get out. They force them in to stay. And when they leave those places, they'll shoot them and they'll conduct the attack. Then they leave and they tell them to stay in there. So when Israel or the U.S. counterattacks, there are civilian casualties. The Taliban did that in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda did it in Iraq. ISIS did it in Iraq and Syria and everywhere they've been. And Hamas is doing that. So there's going to be civilian casualties because that's what Hamas wants. That's what Al-Qaeda wanted. That's what ISIS wants. And sometimes you're going to deal with governments. You know, look at Assad's government in Syria. He, he helped kill 600,000 of his own people, right? Look what Russia's doing in the Ukraine. You know, look what Iraq did to its own population during the ISIS campaign. You know, basically said, Kulahum Hunak Irabin, meaning everyone over there is a terrorist and they happen to be Sunni. And there was no, there were no marches in the streets. There were no protests. You know, it's it's okay when they kill themselves, but God forbid uh, the U.S. or Israel react to a terrorist attack and kill civilians. And, you know, one of the problems that I'm having with these military-age males that you're talk, talking about is they are one degree away from killing somebody. And it's the only reason they're not killing someone is because they can't get their hands on them. That's, that's a big deal. So when you look at Hamas... And then you look at the military-aged males that are standing around after these uh, counter-strikes by Israel. It's the same people. The, the, the Palestinians in Gaza, 80% of them support Hamas and would vote for them again. Now, if they were asked that question with two Hamas fighters in the room, if they were asked by a journalist or a pollster, hey, what do you think about Hamas? Of course they're going to say, we support Hamas. Because I saw, those, I saw that same polling technique in Iraq where, you know, Reuters would come in and ask Iraqis how they felt about the security forces, and the security forces are standing right there. <laughs> and they said, oh, we love the security forces. So I, I would think you'd be able to pill away some people 
in Gaza, give them weapons, give them intel, and have them go kill some Hamas leaders. Sure. But at this point, I can't see the difference between a military-age male and a Hamas fighter, with the exception of a green bandana, because they are as violent. Remember, on October 7th, it wasn't just Hamas that went across the border. It was these military-age males that went across the border, too, and just grabbed whatever they could grab and committed atrocities um, and took hostages. And there's no difference between them and Hamas other than maybe some military training. But the, the one degree away from killing, the one degree away from violence, it's not because they're going to have a moment of, of conscious when they hold on to somebody. It's the, once they grab a hold of somebody, that's when they're actually going to kill. And we're seeing that with these protests here in the United States. And you're seeing it with our open border in the United States. The majority of the people crossing are not Latino. And they're all unwed military-aged males. And that is very concerning because... General Petraeus and Ordierno always asked us, think, you know, always told us, think like the enemy. What would you do? What would you do if you were a terrorist leader? Well, if I was a terrorist leader in the United States, I would watch these violent protests in the U.S. and I would pick the talent and I'd engage the talent and say, hey, how do you feel about America? Why don't you take this AK-47 and go, you know, go, go to this cafe tomorrow night and get some revenge? Or why don't you take this explosive and put it here and kill a bunch of uh, Americans who are against Palestine? That's what I would do. And that's what they're doing. We have active cells in the United States, Al-Qaeda cells, ISIS cells, Hezbollah cells, and Hamas cells. They're looking at the talent. And the talent is dumb. The talent, they're just enraged. They're violent. And that's one of the biggest threats that I see right now. And, and one of the problems we have is an incomplete news cycle, right? Uh, meaning we had an explosion at the U.S.-Canadian border everybody thought it was a car bomb and then it turns out it was just an old couple that were upset that they couldn't go to the kiss concert that sounds incomplete to me why would they be going 100 miles an hour 40 feet in the air crashing into something explode and we just call it an, a guy with his wife in a bentley that were upset that the kiss concert was canceled and then we had a guy just blow up his house you know 10 minutes from me in arlington virginia and uh there's no follow-up so we don't know why the house exploded all we know is that the FBI is overwhelmed, the media is overwhelmed. We, we, we're talking about what's going on in Gaza, but we're not talking about what's going on in Ukraine anymore. We're not talking about what's going on in Armenia. We're not talking about what's going on in Yemen. We're not talking about these other places because uh, we are to blame the way we consume information. We get, we get fixed on something and everything is as, has to be as light and as quick as it is on social media, where... The news media is like, well, let's keep up with today's stories because if we talk about what happened two days ago, we're already behind. We, we, we can't do it. I know this kind of sounds like I'm getting off topic here, but this is exactly what terrorist organizations want. They want a distracted media. They want a distracted government. They want to, all they have to do is be a couple steps ahead, right? And the worst part is they have to be right once to be effective. We have to be right 100% of the time. And we can't do that when we're not focused. And we're not focused at all. So how so I agree with you that these like there is a present threat here. What can and should we do about this? I'm from Minneapolis. So where I went to college is right next door to the building with the most ISIS recruits from anywhere else in the United States. It's called Cedar Riverside Plaza. So that's a right. great hometown thing I've got going for me. Um, but so they were all there trying to get to ISIS to go fight for the caliphate. And 
there were never any big attacks here in Minneapolis. Another hometown pride thing we have is the terrorists who flew into the building on 9-11 were trained how to fly 20 minutes from where I grew up. And they notified the FBI, hey, there's a bunch of weird guys who are very enthusiastic to learn how to fly, but they don't care to learn how to land the plane. So can you do something about this? And that intelligence never got to the CIA. They couldn't stop 9-11. So I know that these things happen just in my backyard, and I'm sure that's happening all over the United States as well. So what do we do to protect ourselves and stop? We, We have every American is a sensor. Every American sees something, hears something. But they've been silenced because as soon as you come up and say something like, hey, today, if you said the same thing, hey, there's some Middle Eastern guys trying to learn how to fly a plane, you'd be called an Islamophobe. So the first thing we need to do is lift that stigma of of telling the police what you saw. You know, everyone's afraid of being called something. So you saw how quick the Islamophobe tag came out, that that tribe came out right after, or that trope came out right after the um, October 7th attacks. The next day, boom, if you criticize this, you're an Islamophobe. I, I learned Arabic. I've studied Islam. I've worked with Middle Easterners my, my whole life. And they will be the first to tell you that guy's a terrorist. You know, so we got to get we got to get there. And the best part is Americans already have a default um, profiling instinct because of 9-11, because of the ISIS lone wolves, because of, you know, our, our brain is wired to, to look at indicators of what your brain knows to be a threat. And it's only your teaching through media and, you know, your shaming that where you're like, oh, I, I probably shouldn't think that way. But it's, it's normal. It's, it's it got to be an instinctual when it comes to this. So the one thing I would say is we got to lift the stigma of if you see something, say something. And not have people say, well, I, I don't want to be racist if I say... I saw some people, and and what I'll say about that is, these groups are not looking to recruit Arabs anymore. They're looking to recruit people out of the BLM movement, out of the Antifa movement, just anybody who's joined all these all these woke idiots that are joining this this movement. They have no idea that you cannot be LGBTQ in Gaza. You know, you cannot be a strong woman with a strong voice in Gaza unless you are supporting exactly what Hamas wants. Um, or you're a martyr, or your your husband was a martyr, or your children were martyred. You know, there's a price to pay for for your voice in these places, and and you see them all the time. And, and and the one thing I would say to your audience is, go back to the classic liberal position of, you know, Greenwich Village and Haight Ashbury, where you questioned authority. Where if if you were part of the group, think you said, no, nah, this doesn't feel right. Instead, it's the opposite. People just go forward in the whole. You know, my daughter, my youngest daughter is more like me. She's a contrarian. She questions things. My oldest daughter kind of goes with what's popular. And and then she gets corrected by her younger sister, which is great. But I always tell them, don't believe everything you hear. Question authority. And more important, um, if you're part of the majority, then you might be wrong. You know, break out of that. You know, be a classical liberal from from the 70s that never held up a New York Times and said, hey, that's been debunked. You know, they questioned the New York Times and we're not going to listen to that. That's an establishment media. We we have, you notice I haven't mentioned anything about law enforcement here. It's all about culture because culture is going to, the, the, the way we, you know, censor everything that we say, you know, to protect ourselves from attack is going to get us attacked, is going to get us 
you know, is, is going to bring on that that terrorist attack. Imagine after 9-11 if Americans were marching in the streets supporting al-Qaeda. That's what's happening now. So these terrorist groups are looking at these idiot Americans that, that fall into this victim-oppressor, you know, championing bullshit, excuse my language, of just yeah. joining every cause and saying, we're for that. I'm like, you're an idiot. Excuse my language. <laughs> can I guess on this podcast? Yes, you can. <laughs> It's like you have no idea that as soon as you were in Mosul or in, in Basra or in Gaza, you're the ones going to be thrown off the building. You cannot be an atheist and support Hamas because they will kill you. You can't be any of these things. So these terrorist groups are now looking at America as, wow, we could actually conduct a 9-11 scale attack and half the country would support us. Half the politicians would support us. And that's exactly what the Russians want. That's what the Chinese want. And that's what these terrorist groups want. They have a permissive environment now. We have shamed ourselves into submission and censorship to the point where we don't trust our instincts anymore because we're worried about the ramifications. Like there's five guys that, you know, moved in across the street and and I'm worried about them because they come in at two o'clock in the morning. It looks like they're bringing in boxes of stuff. Oh, you're a racist. You know, it, it's it's like, okay, okay. Um, and then it happens and then you become a Cassandra, right? So it's just, that's one of the biggest problems we have is see something, say something, but watch what you say. You know, you, you can't, it doesn't work. So I, I don't see a law enforcement, a solution because, you know, we used to be able to monitor mosques. We used to be able to, you know, the New York NYPD had a terrorist counterterrorism unit that's been defunded. It's not working anymore. And our FBI is concerned about the veteran military guy who voted Republican. They see them as the biggest threat in the country. And what's interesting about that is, I was talking to somebody about that, is that if a government asks the military to go after veterans that voted Republican, the military wouldn't do it because the military would be arresting them, their future selves. Like, well, I'm going to retire in 10 years and I'm going to be that guy. So they're not going to do it. The police force isn't going to do it. Who's going to do it? Maybe these 8 million gotaways who hate this country that are all military age males. Maybe they're the ones that, that will go after, you know, I know that sounds crazy, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a warnings analyst. I look at indicators. Uh, we could not defeat al-Qaeda in Iraq because of the foreign fighter flow coming in from Syria. Because we couldn't secure that border, al-Qaeda kept getting replenished with experts and fighters. Look at this country. Al-Qaeda never got 8 million people across into Iraq to f fight for them. And these terrorist groups don't need more than 800 to be to wreak havoc here. So there are a lot of concerns. But law enforcement is overwhelmed. It's taxed. And if you go out there and put your put your life on the line... The guy that you capture will be released tomorrow because of all these these prosecutors. So we are in a very vulnerable position. And if I was a terrorist leader, I, I don't see anything getting in my way other than being stupid and making a big mistake. That's a that's a great. I know I don't try to get these answers shorter for you, but no, no, no. I, I no, I'm very appreciative. I, I love it. So I guess I can wrap up with. I'll say two things. The first is the overwhelming majority of Americans when polled support Israel. And I think supporting Israel is akin to supporting the United States. We're very close allies because we think the same. It's not 
wrong to support Israel. It's not anti-American to support Israel. I think right. it's anti-American to not. That's my personal opinion. But the conversation on social media seems very different. And I think that's creating confusion for especially young people because to me, the problem is the dissonance from social media. Seeing the poll numbers and the Congress that I think has been kind of weak on this, but overwhelmingly they think are supporting Israel. And then they feel like everyone's not supporting Israel. And it's I think that dissonance might create violence. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think in this case, we have another silent majority, right? We have the majority of Americans support Israel. Majority of the Democrat Party supports Israel in the 80 percentile. And it's these loud voices that it's the same lemmings. It's the same people that marched in every protest movement since Trump was elected in 2016. It's the same people. And what what I would, again, say uh, to, to your viewers and your audience is that if you're gay, if you don't believe in God, if you are liberal, if you are all these things, all these social justice causes that you believe in, you can only do those things in Israel. You cannot do those things in Gaza. Those things would get you killed. And Israel has a vibrant community where everyone is accepted. And to include Arab Muslims, and there there are so many people there, um, and there's no genocide in Gaza because the population has grown big time, and it's it's there are all these facts that get in the way that we can't get in the way of their violent emotional position. They don't want to believe they were duped because then they would have to admit they fell for it, you know. They've been lied to, and to admit that would mean they were useful idiots. And we all know they are. And it's it's a silly, silly country when we have... It's a silly country that becomes dangerous for everyone else. When you have the youth in this country believe in all of these causes, I mean, who, who's next? What, what I do like about what's happened since October 7th is people that were not awake are now awake. And I won't say woke ever, but... They are awake. They see what they created, and they see that it turned against them. And uh, and they're not just Jewish Americans. They're just the liberal left has said, "Oh, this is this is too much. You can't you cannot hijack these movements and make them a pro jihadist movement." And that's what they've become mm-hmm. a pro jihadist. You know all these TikTok uh, people uh, wanting to convert to Islam and. And reading the Quran, it's like you go ahead and do that, and then know that everything that you believe you stand for has just—you've just been subjugated to a man if you're a woman, and if you're a male and you're not straight and and adherent to uh, Islam, you know you can get away if you're a man. You cannot get away if you're a gay man. You cannot get away if you're a woman or, or a lesbian or anything like that uh, without a man approving. You know, it, it, it's. It's laughable to me that that we have become we we have become so our youth has become so naive I, I wouldn't even say naive it, st- stupid because you can teach somebody something these are people that are going to higher education you know you know universities and they're they're getting they're going into these universities and coming out idiots because they're buying into these lies the university has now become social justice, manif- you know, what, what do you call it? A, uh, social adult. Yeah. Just, just, uh, just, uh, just 
basically just producing all of these idiots. And um, the terrorists can't believe it. You actually have atheists, you know, you have you have people that don't believe in a God, people that believe in all of these, you know, different causes, not understanding that they are supporting a terrorist group that will kill them for their beliefs. But right now they're just using them. And it's it's uh it's 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 embarrassing and it's concerning. So then my final question is what is your perfect world solution from America? And then what should Israel do to handle? Like, should they preemptively strike Hezbollah? Should they? No, uh, no. Hezbollah, no. Okay. All they have to do is um, hit Iran and Hezbollah won't do anything. Okay. Make Iran look weak. Because seriously, Nasrallah learned from the Syrian war that he lost so much capital with the Lebanese people when he sent their their sons to fight in Syria and be killed. Mm-hmm. And then when Israel conducted airstrikes in Syria and killed Hezbollah members and Iran IRGC Quds Force members, uh, Putin sat on his hands. Putin didn't use any of his air defense assets to keep Israel from doing that because Putin didn't care. It's like Israel can do what it wants in Syria. We're here for a base. We're here for a port. Um, but to kind of put all that together, um, Israel should not attack Lebanese Hezbollah. Le- Lebanese Hezbollah is, is the most capable terrorist group in the region, mm-hmm. but it also knows that it is vulnerable. The one thing that Israel does effectively is it'll show senior leaders, this is what disappears if you attack us. This is where your mistress lives. This is your favorite restaurant. This is where your grandma lives. This is where your niece lives. This is where, these are all the things from your childhood that will disappear. And it's a great tactic because it shows them what they're going to lose. And um, if you want to hurt or stop Hamas, stop all these groups, you got to hit hit Iran. You don't have to destroy, invade Iran. You just you just hit it. Show it that it's going to be punished for these actions. And if Iran looks weak, Hezbollah, Lebanese Hezbollah will, will stop. We have to remember, under the sanctions under Trump, uh, Iran couldn't pay Hezbollah. They were having to raise money from the Houthis. And the Houthis are pretty poor, but they were taking donations for Lebanese Hezbollah. So you look at that, and, and here in the U.S., we got we got to close the border. And we got to look at all these unwed military mouths and say, if you don't have a legitimate, you know, case for, am- for you know, amnesty, you're, you're out of here. You know, um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's that simple, but it's made hard by the fact that there are 8 million gotaways here in the U.S. And they're from all walks, walks of life. But, you know, it's, it, it's almost... It is negligent by our government to allow us to get to this point because I don't have an answer for you on what we do here. I don't. Uh, You know, we we stopped the Chinese funding to universities, the Qatari funding to universities, the Iranian back channels to our government, Iranian back channels to our think tanks. Cut all that off, and then we, we just have to name and shame politicians on both sides of the aisle that are receiving money from these groups and buying their silence. It's, it's, um, it's it's overwhelming, and I wish we had more time because I probably would come up with some 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 more solutions. But the the big thing in the Middle East, if Iran suffers, it'll stop. If Iran feels pain, it'll stop. Here in the U.S., we literally have a political party that doesn't believe in enforcing laws, and we have another political party that's changing from its historical traditional national defense role to a protectionist role, and they're in conflict with each other to the point where we're not going to get anywhere. There's no consensus. Inside our border, there's no consensus outside our border. <clears throat> and that makes us uh, vulnerable uh, to our adversaries and competitors. 
Okay. Thank you so much. This has been so insightful. I know people are going to love um, all this. Do you have anything you want to promote from you to the audience? No, I mean, you can, you can follow me on, on Twitter, I guess. Um, I'm going to be writing some op-eds on, on this, and they'll be published, and I'll put those on Twitter as well. But um, just to, to your audience, you, you don't feel overwhelmed by what's going on. There are good people on the wall fighting the good fight. There are good people fighting this every day. Anything you care about, go find somebody who's an influencer, who's working on an actual influencer, who's working on foreign policy, national security, issues that keep you up at night. Follow them champion them, support them, and it'll give you some some peace to focus on what you need to focus on. There are good people on the wall, and uh, I know a lot of them. Definitely. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. Stop recording. Uh, all right. So I hope that it was as fun to listen and learn from this interview as it was for me to like give this interview. Seriously, this this clarified so much for me, especially with like Iran, Qatar, all these different things. I hope it really helps you understand and navigate um, the complexities of the issue while at the same time understanding that it is solvable. And I think he talked a lot about the problem we're facing in America and you know, there's kind of a call to action for all of us to stand up to this kind of political correctness, being afraid to call things out, you know, when people are supporting jihadist terrorist organizations. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts. Please DM me or um, comment on the videos or comment on the show notes, YouTube videos, whatever you want to do. I'd really love to hear everyone's thoughts about this um, this episode. And yeah, have a great rest of your week. I will speak to you next Monday.